Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Talk Radio, where we discuss business, politics, and culture. I'm your host, Donia Keating, live in the Seattle area today at 2 p.m. Pacific Time on Thursday, November 6th. Really special shout-out today to Tim Ryan Construction, who agreed to let us move the studio onto their site today since we were dead in the water. Thanks, Comcast. I really appreciate being able to continue with business as usual here, Sarah. Listeners, dial 646-378-0261 to chime in live. Press 1 on your keypad when you're ready to speak. If you'd rather send us a comment or a question via chat, you can open that up and go. Uh, maybe a little bit touch and go from what we've been hearing, unless you have a Blog Talk radio account. But, you know, give it a shot. This afternoon, we're going to have a fireside chat, minus the fire, with uh, one of my favorite Washington State policy walks, uh, Lou McMurrin. He's president at McMurrin Enterprises. Before he formed his consulting business, he spent 13 years as a lobbyist in Olympia for the Washington Technology Industry Association. Uh, He's highly respected by business and tech leaders and politicians, and we are just going to roll today with several topics here about business, and uh, we're going to talk about policy, the elections, trends, and whatever else comes up for us. So welcome, Lou. Are you out there? I am, Dunya. It's great to be here with you and your listeners today. Great. We're great to have you. So we're going to just dive right in. And why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you've done in your career and just kind of bring us forward to what you're doing now. Great. Thanks. Well, you mentioned uh, 13 years at the WTIA, Washington Technology Industry Association. Uh, For the previous uh, 12 years before that, I lobbied for uh, financial services. I came up through uh, uh, good old HFC, which actually doesn't exist anymore. I came up through a through the branch office system, uh, was in the right place at the right time back in 1989 when they needed a government relations director for this region. Um, I was there until 96. Then I went actually for a short time lobbied for King County as their legislative liaison to the state. Uh, That was quite an education on local government. Then I spent three years at the Washington Public Utility District Association in the late 90s during that uh, time of energy deregulation and um, all those issues and questions. That was a pretty interesting time in the utility and energy business. Was there until 2000, then went off to um, uh, WTIA, which, is, which was then known as the Washington Software Alliance. And then in, in the, over the past year, I decided I needed to make a change and wanted to be in business for myself. And so I've been uh, dabbling in a def- number of different areas. Um, I'm working actually with a couple of interesting startups in the Seattle area, one in the healthcare space, one in cybersecurity. Um, kind of went back into the uh, insurance game, so I've got a health, life, and disability license, so I can uh, offer health and uh, health insurance. And uh, just working with a lot of interesting startups, meeting a lot of people, staying around the tech sector, and just trying to provide value wherever I can. So you mentioned that you were working with some startups. Do you, is it okay if you mention who they are and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely, if you're uh, open for that. So one, um, on the healthcare side, uh, I'm working with a gentleman, a, a cardiologist out of Kirkland, who has formed a company called Analytics4, number 4, medicine.com, if you want to go check it out. And his other company is called Chai Squared, C-H-I-S-Q.com. The piece that is really, I think, uh, both pieces are really quite interesting, but the piece that is really healthcare-related and really can drive some improved healthcare outcomes is this online tool for doctors and patients to treat hypertension more effectively. So uh, we're working on looking for some health insurance customers and some other folks who may be large uh, self-insured employers that really have large health care costs. Hypertension is very poorly treated and always ends up, not always, but ends up with real bad outcomes, strokes, heart attacks, and other things. And if we can drive those costs down, 
health insurers will benefit, consumers will benefit, doctors will. This tool really helps doctors manage that problem better. So that's one thing. And the other one is a um, cyber risk marketplace, and we're developing what we think is a really great solution to all the cyber risk and cyber threat problems that are out there that are just enormous and uh, really taking a toll on the economy, taking a toll on businesses, consumers. Uh, just the inconvenience factor and loss of reputation is just is in the billions of dollars these days. So those are two specific uh-huh. ones I'm working on, but also involved in a number of other things, looking at uh, uh, this crowdfunding issue I think is really interesting, uh, the crowdfunding law, and certainly after um, yesterday's um, initiatives in both Oregon and Alaska, the cannabis industry is certainly on the grow. Um, I guess that's a uh, unintended <laughs> pun there, but uh, certainly you see Washington, Colorado, and now you've seen you're seeing sort of a, a West Coast uh, cannabis market really open up here. So that's an interesting industry to I think to take a look at. Yeah, and we're to talk, going to talk a little bit about that, um, the marijuana, the advisory uh, excise tax, uh, number eight vote that we had in the state um, that's still at maintained at 53% the last time I looked at it. But we're going to go through like some of the issues and ch- kind of get your feedback and your opinion on some of those being the wonk that you are. Sure. Um, <laughs> so as we all know, uh, the, November, the November 4th election results are kind of top of mind for many of us out there. So, yeah, you know, yeah. some big some big but predictable changes um, came about. You know, there's kind of a red yeah. tide going across the country. And then there were right. a few surprises or upsets thrown in there. So in our own backyard, we've got uh, Larry Sechrist. He's a representative of state representative. And it looks like he might be ousted by Michelle Caldier. Um, we also have Kathy Hay, who's being unseated by Daniel Griffey. Uh, Jesse Young is winning his race. Uh, and the big one at yep. the county commissioner level, obviously, is moderate Republican Ed Wolf over the incumbent, Linda Streisguth, who was appointed by her party earlier this year when Josh Brown left to take the head position over at uh, Puget Sound Regional Council. So and mm-hmm. others were easy and expected wins, like you know, State Senator Jan Angel. That's kind of a no-brainer. And Coroner Greg, mm-hmm. Greg Sandstrom. Um, I think Treasurer Meredith Green was kind of a no-brainer. And you know, another thing that we're dealing with is the, the recent change in the numbers. Where Tina Robinson, she actually has a slight edge over the incumbent prosecuting attorney, Russ Hoagie. But I wanted to get your thoughts about mm-hmm. the races and the specific wins and losses here, but also nationally. And then yeah. kind of get your your feedback on what are the implications, and then after that, kind of roll into your 2016 predictions. Okay, great. So uh, <laughs> I'll start with national. And, and clearly, I mean, I was somewhat surprised. I mean, I think it was pretty well, you know, the polls were showing the Republicans were going to do well in the Senate and that they might, you know, they might re, you know, re-get it, but there was always the risk that they could shoot themselves in the foot. Um, but when you look at those pickups, um, that was quite substantial. I mean, and, and so they okay. held every seat and then they gained seats. Um, and, and so, and it looks like, and I don't see how Mary Landrieu survives the Louisiana runoff, and then you've got this Virginia race, which is super, super close right now. But, you know, the Republicans are going to probably pick up, you know, get 53. But really, and then, you know, they got more seats in the House, the U.S. House, which, frankly, was, I thought was also a bit surprising. Um, but really the area which was, you know, I think that where the Democrats really have to uh, have to pay attention here is at the state houses, where, I mean, Maryland elected a Republican governor. I mean, Maryland is essentially a client state of Washington, D.C., and they elected yes. a Republican governor. Um, right. You look at Illinois. I mean, you know, Illinois had used to go back and forth, but for a while it's been pretty, pretty Democrat, and they have elected a Republican governor. And then uh, Massachusetts, of course, they've elected Republicans in the past for governor, Mitt Romney being one, but um, that was one where, um, you know, Martha Coakley, again, could not win a statewide, statewide race. In fact, the joke on election night was that uh, Scott Brown should have stayed in Massachusetts. He could have won the governor's race instead of losing to Gene Shaheen up in New Hampshire. So, um, you know, should have stayed, in his, stayed within his, his own boundaries. You know, in our state, I mean, really not a lot of surprises you know, those three closed house races really kind of really in your area, uh, you got the 28th, the 26th and the 35th district um, right. are, are really the three that are, you know, will determine whether or not the Republicans have either 48 in the state house or 45. But either way, they did pretty well. They held the Senate and picked up a seat, actually, with Mark Melosha winning that federal way seat um, and uh, Andy Hill keeping his seat and all the incumbents keeping their seats. So um, that will bring, of course, you know, divided government back to Olympia, which in my experience and those of us that have been in the game actually kind of prefer that situation. Um, but that's sort of an insider's um, game on that. But 
Uh, and then also, too, interesting, the, you know, the ballot measures being what they were, seeing 1351 as close as it is, um, and then seeing 594 pass pretty substantially. So uh, interesting results, as always. You know, we show ourselves to be kind of a purple state. I mean, even though we're generally blue in a lot of areas, we, you know, when you get down into it, we're pretty purple. And so um, there's a lot, you know, a lot's going to go on to bring up for Olympia. There is obviously this McCleary decision that hanging over the hanging over the um, the legislature's head. Uh, you know, technically they've been found in contempt. I was just uh, reading through some of that uh, the re- the response from the legislature about that. About they said, hey guys, you know, don't hold us in contempt here. We're trying, we're doing the best we can in a messy legislative process. And so I, I tend to be a little bit uh, sympathetic toward that. But the reality is, is that the legislature is going to have to put in a pretty substantial chunk of change um, in this next biennial budget for education to comply with McCleary. Yeah, and I, I was looking at the 1351 numbers the other day and how we have basically in Kidsap County, we were at 52.2% or something like that. Well, we're saying yes. At the statewide mm-hmm. level, we're still at a no. I mean, obviously, there's some more results coming in this afternoon or you know, about right. 5 or 6 o'clock, but we're still at a no statewide. And, I'm, you know, I'm one of those people that really did not want 1351 to go through because it's, it's one of those things where, yes, we have an obligation to do something about education. We have to fund some of these mandates. We also have to reconfigure the way that we operate the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other part of it is the answer is not just to throw money at putting, you know, reducing the class size. That's only one part mm-hmm. of the the issue. And of course, because we always deal, we, you and I deal with technology. Um, it's it's you have to start thinking about and incorporating the way that technology is changing the way that schools and and, and uh, classrooms are going to yeah. be functioning going forward. We keep trying to train our kids for a world that they're not going to be um, living in once they're done. And so we really have to start thinking about. How much money do you throw at a system that you know very well may be extinct by the time our kids get to college or my kid gets to college? We have to start thinking, you know, be more forward thinking in our, our strategies. In my opinion, let's jump back a little bit to some of the initiatives that we. And it looks like somebody wants to join in. Let me see who this is. All right, who is out there with us? Somebody out there or no? Okay, well we'll just see if they jump in. They jump in. Hi, this is Charles. Oh, oh, hi, Charles. Welcome. We're just talking about uh, initiatives. We're talking about some of the things that we were uh, dealing with in the election. So guns and uh, the Washington State, 591 versus 594. Lou, why don't you pretend that you're talking to people out there that don't know what it was and what the distinctions are, and just give them kind of a quick and dirty. On the two gun initiatives? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, so 594 – okay, let's say 591 essentially was a status quo – uh, initiative. It basically said, and in fact, I, you know, it was very simple. It was one of those you could actually read pretty quickly and understand it. Um, and basically said, look, you know, if the federal law changes regarding background checks, uh, that is sufficient for the state. So it was basically a status quo vote um, it, and had no real fiscal impact or anything of that nature. 594, of course, actually was something different and requires background checks so for non-licensed firearm dealers so these are private sales or gun show sales and that kind of thing so uh i think a lot of folks saw that it was closing a loophole quote unquote and felt that it was a reasonable way to do so um again after reading through the initiative and again you know you look at things you know these horrible incidences like we recently had up at marysville and other things and right. people really feel like they want to do something. Um, and if this if this initiative can can limit sales to those that would use guns in an uh, illegal and um, unfortunate and you know un um, uh, violent way, you know maybe that's a good thing. I, I you know I tend my personally I tend to be pretty Second Amendment, but I, I didn't see the need for this as much. But uh-huh. again, if, if it can do something. Um, it won't prevent vi- it won't prevent random gun violence. I mean, that's the thing. I, I, there is no panacea for that, but it could close a certain loophole, and it could uh, it could uh, it, it could maybe prevent some bad people from getting guns that they should not have. So, if that's the case, you know, I hope that's what it does. I hope it doesn't do more than that. There are some exemptions in there. Uh-huh. It's always the case is how does it get enforced, and um, how will it? You know, how do law enforcement agencies actually go about doing it? How will you know, does it creates new crimes, and so it creates new penalties. And if you're, you know, if you do a, se- I, I believe a, a second violation under this new law, 
is a Class C felony. So it's pretty serious if uh, if you do violate it. Absolutely. Charles, are you out there? Do you have any uh, comments or thoughts about uh, 591 versus 594? Well, I don't think we need to make it easier to own guns, but uh, those that have their legal rights that uh, have an, are entitled to uh, purchase guns, they should be able to. I see no reason why I should be able to, you know, go to a gun show and buy a gun though. Uh, with and, and in, a, in a lot of ways, I think, you know, it levels the playing field. If you're a legitimate dealer and they do a background check, why would you give them the option or have an option where somebody could go somewhere else and an unlicensed person or somebody who wouldn't pass a background check could purchase a weapon? Yeah, that's a loophole. So closing a loophole I don't think is a is a problem. On the other hand, I didn't read the entire text of the initiative, so, um, you know, that that being said, sometimes the intent of something sounds good, but the, when you get down to the wording of the impl- of the application, that's where there can be problems. So in that respect, um, I, to tell you the truth, I don't know, but I don't think it's it's not going to do a, a substantial amount of harm, and it does have the possibility to do some good. So uh, there you go. I think that's kind of where I lie with it. And what is? do you have any thoughts on 1351 and the class sizes? Oh, my God. Thank thank God it's probably not going to pass. Um, and the reason <laughs> for that is uh, I think that would just be horrible. Um, first off, it's kind of like one of the worst uh, budget-busting type initiatives. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, the, the problem I have with a lot of initiatives is if they're designed to reduce flexibility, then that's a bad thing. In other words, you don't want to set a cookie-cutter standard that says, well, all class sizes need to be small. Because it really depends upon those students. It really depends upon the situation. It really depends upon a lot of different factors that can't be just broad brushstroke into a legislation. And, um, for instance, if you just try to reduce class sizes in a district that, say, doesn't have physical space, what are you going to do, build another school? You know, it could be potentially horrendously expensive for that district to be able to comply. Um, Whereas, on the other hand, you know, maybe they can add additional uh, teachers within a classroom in order to comply and provide a better you – know, I want to see whatever's going to provide the best educational result for the money. We have to think about efficiency um, in, in the way we provide education. And I think that legislation would have reduced flexibility and would not have been a very efficient way of, of improving, improving our educational results. I think that was its critical flaw. I just got a comment coming through saying that uh, McCleary was basically another unfunded mandate, and that's why it doesn't have any teeth. Any comments on that? Well, when the courts when the courts make a decision, there's certainly some teeth involved. But you know, if you look at school K-12 spending over the past you know 20 plus years, it's gone up and up and up and up. I mean, it always goes up. One year, 2010, it went down. I mean, that was in the depths of the recession. So, uh, again, I'd, I'd have to, you know, agree with Charles. And I, I, I think, I mean, the fact that it's failing when there was absolutely no campaign against 1351, I mean, people, I think they really sat down and read and they looked at that fiscal impact and they said $4 billion or, you know, it's a substantial amount of money. And they saw that it wasn't always going to teachers, classroom teachers. I mean, there were a whole bunch of other non-certificated staff that were going to get hired out of that. Plus, knowing the fact that the McCleary was sort of out there in the ether, I think people said, okay, this is not such a good idea. I mean, I thought it was really interesting that it failed in Thurston County. What does that tell you? It tells you that the folks who generally, and that's a very much of a state employee you know, county, right? I mean, they saw right, exactly. that, wait a minute, this, is gonna, this could take away from social services. This could take away from higher education. This could be a real problem. And I thought it was really interesting that Thurston County, which is certainly, you know, no conservative county by any stretch, voted against 1351. I, I you know, think on the state level, every newspaper editorial board recommended against 1351. That is telling. Yeah. yeah. And you, at your, uh, Charles, the West Sound Technology Association had an annual summit that just, just took place, and I want to say it was October or whatever. My, my time runs together here. But um, <laughs> Renee Ratcliffe Sinclair was the keynote, and she is used to lead the strategic initiatives for Apple. And one of the things that she said about McCleary, obviously, is that it, it – puts a lot of emphasis or focus on the K through 12 conversation, but it really leaves out the university um, K through 20 level type uh, conversation because we're not really focusing beyond that where there are some some significant problems that are not being addressed, particularly in Washington State regarding the students and their ability to go into UW or other universities where those seats are really um, very limited. So do you guys have any comments on that? Any thoughts about that? 
We wanted well, to you know, that's, that, that was an area that I certainly lobbied a lot on was higher support for higher education, particularly around the STEM-related degrees. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, the one thing—I mean, that's the thing. Higher education. This is across the you know across the states. You know, is a place where states balance their budgets. They're very reluctant to deal with K-12, and of course, we have a constitutional issue around K-12, so it really does require a, a substantial portion of our state budget. Then we've got those drivers like Medicaid and other where, you know, of course, Washington State would never think about, well, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't expand Medicaid. No, no, we got to expand Medicaid. So we spend more to get more federal money. And it really squeezes, it really squeezes that higher education budget, which is not, you know, which is not sacrosanct, nor is it protected. Um, But frankly, our higher education system is pretty darn efficient. The kids that we get into the system, they come out in a pretty reasonable period of time. And generally, are getting employed depending, especially depending on the type of major that they're taking. Uh, on the community college system, of course, very workforce oriented. So there's a lot of programs at the community colleges where you go get your certificate or your AA, and you know you're walking right into a fifty or sixty thousand dollar job. You know, in a, in a you know in a skill that is you know probably not outsourceable. Um, you know, but when we've seen when we've seen this legislature put money into when they target money, especially you know, again, for computer science and engineering, the, the universities respond. And now you're seeing now with a lot more student demand, which is great, a lot better student achievement. And so the slots then, again, so the, so the universities, of course, are taking a small percentage. Um, and, but when they get funded, at least, they can take a higher percentage, and then there's less pressure to take those out-of-state out of students that pay, you know, the full, the full three, you know, 3x tuition of an, of an in-state student. So. Right. Um, yeah, so it's it's going to be tough. The budgets are always going to be tough on higher ed, uh, but higher ed really, in our state, does a pretty darn good job of um, uh, of providing a good edu- you know a good education where students are coming out employable and and work ready. Well, that's an interesting comment or a series of comments because we do a lot of stuff like you with you know Technology Alliance and all of the you know Microsoft and all of the other um, tech sector um, companies here, and we hear just the opposite. We hear that they have a really challenging time, um, you know, filling that talent gap and that they are not able to find people and you know that we're not being uh, we're not educating our students at a level that's competitive. And you know, you look at the numbers, even going back to the time when we were dealing with Technology Alliance on a, a larger uh, level, that they said that you know. Washington State, the way that it performed nationally, was very, very low. We are a great importer of, of talent, and we attract a lot of talent because, you know, we really have a really strong tech sector here, an IT sector here. But in terms of producing our own, we are still hearing a lot of feedback, and I know Charles can speak to that as well, that we really aren't getting our students up to snuff in terms of education, and especially in that IT or technology space. Charles, do you want to offer some comments on that level? Couple, couple of them. Uh, one, I think a lot of that's directed towards capacity in terms of like uh-huh. the number of technology-based and STEM engineering type degrees that are available, the slots for those. Apparently, like, you know, for, first off, we don't have a deep university system here compared to some other states that are quote unquote considered our peer states. You know, we have UW, we have a couple of, a couple of you know, universities, but, you know, beyond that, it gets much thinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so just in terms of raw capacity, there hasn't been enough capacity in terms of engineering students, computer science uh, slots. And, you know, the, uh, the, for the universities, it's, it's, it's more expensive to uh, provide slots for engineering students, although IT is by itself, I think, the largest um, demand for STEM-skilled jobs uh, growing in the future. In other words, there will be a need for engineers, but there's going to be a much greater need for more people in computer IT skill uh, type careers going forward in the future when you look at the code.org stats. That being said, um, it's not just strictly our, our four-year university programs, but a lot of our community colleges have gotten into the game, and I think that's wonderful because that's going to definitely increase the capacity of producing IT uh, degree program students, uh, so there will be greater output. When you look at education in Washington State, some of those bad numbers, I don't think it's always like like when, when Ken Meyer was giving us grade reports, I think he was looking at K through 12 and not higher ed really more in terms of grading our system. So even though we're investing a lot more resources in K-12, our, our numbers aren't coming. Now, I don't know all the details of how the money is spent and what kind of performance we get for the bang for the buck. Lou, I think you may be right. I think 
higher ed may be relatively efficient. I know that um, Olympic College was mentioning how they became 30% more efficient in the last few years than they were mm-hmm. before, and that was just recently. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's yeah. a good thing. I think maybe you know the, the tight budgets have been the mother of the necessity of invention, and I think it drives a lot of them because they realize they cannot waste dollars because it yeah. just doesn't exist. No, so I think that's very done, true. They've done it. The yeah. problem, I think, in K-12 is metrics and standards. And, you know, unfortunately, um, Washington State kind of shot itself in the foot, or I should say WAA um, kind of helped, helped us shoot ourselves in the foot with getting uh, behind the – getting basically against teacher standards, uh, testing standards, and caused us to follow the No Child Left Behind Act and lo- lose our waiver. And that yeah, causes an issue. not yeah. only a lack of funding – that only not only causes the lack of funding, but it causes other types of problems. So at some point in time, you know, first off, uh, I do want to say to all the districts that are out there, the ones that are trying hard and doing a great job, you know, there there is some good stuff out there. I'm not saying it's universally bad, um, but um, somebody has to look at the system, look at the way the money is being spent. And, for instance, this I-1351, I think that was a bad idea. If you're going to put money in the system, you want to make sure that that money is well spent, that it targets the problem, and that there's metrics and, st- and testing and standards so that you know that you're improving your end result. So that, for instance, our, we have a higher graduation rate. Well, the lower yeah, you know, the, um, Lou, you had some comments you wanted to add? Yeah, well, the, on the higher ed, the, the issue for Washington State is really is this, quote-unquote, leaky pipeline. Right. I mean, we don't graduate. Not enough kids are graduating from high school. I mean, so that, that's a problem. Too many kids. So, again, I forget what the statistic is. You know, 100 kids that come in at, as freshmen, only you know, 80 are graduating in four years. I mean, that's that's a problem. So so and then and then we've got a, a much lower four year participation rate. Um, in Washington state of Washington state students in four year. That is a problem for sure. But what I'm saying is that the kids that are come into our four-year system do well and we're efficient for the ones that are in. The problem is that is the leaky pipeline between K-12 and higher ed, whether that's because our, our, our participation rate in, for community colleges is something, in, in the, I think, among the top five in the whole U.S., which is great, right? So we're really good at, at that, but we aren't as good at getting our young people graduated from high school with a meaningful diploma and then into a four-year system. Now, of course, too, some of that is financial these days. Some of it is, you know, maybe the value of a four-year education isn't what it, is, it used to be unless you're in engineering or business or maybe a few other, you know, real key majors. So there may be some of that, too. But I mean, that, that's the area where Washington is problematic is that, is that pipeline between K-12 or graduation rate and, and participation in our four-year system. But our four-year system is a high-quality system for those that are, that are in it. I mean, you look at, you know, world rankings for University of Washington, for example, you know, amazing, right? Washington State has a lot of great programs, and our regionals, you know, are doing a, a good job. And, again, I agree with Charles. The, um, the, the budget um, necessities that they found themselves in over the past few years really forced some, some real hard looks at how they operated, um, you know, internally. So, some, But I, I, see good, I see good things happening in education. It's just so hard to move quickly. I mean, these. The, I mean, when you talk about the business model for K-12, I mean, we're still talking in the agricultural era, much less the, the you know the manufacturing era, much less the information era. So, I mean, you can't just throw more money at a you know at an ancient business model and expect it to you know to change and be better. I mean, exactly. yeah, we, it's almost a whole rethinking of what does the school day look like. Um, summer vacations. I know for a lot of parents, don't bring that up, but I mean, summer vacations. I mean, kids aren't working on farms anymore. I mean, you know, they're barely working. Period in the summer. So, why we have this school year set up the way it is, even is is a throwback to a you know an agricultural era that doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah, that's very true, and I, I think it's one of those things where whenever you try to have a conversation about you know education or education policy or whatever, I mean, you always get that that violin strings, you know, oh, it's about the kids, it's for the kids, and it's like, uh, yeah. no, it's actually it's not for the kids, not anymore. We can hear, you know, when it's really for somebody else, and when you're actually you know per- perpetuating a system for other benefits that that sometimes yeah. don't have anything to do with kids. Uh, yeah. So let's switch gears here. Let's talk about healthcare. Yeah. 
especially sure. since that's what you're going to you're doing. I mean, there are problems yeah. and improvements in that system, and then there's an open enrollment coming on the fifteenth. Right. You can talk about that, and then there's kind of a trade association coverage uh, opportunity sure. there. So why don't you just yeah. kind of talk to us about? I mean, it's certainly not a happy time for a lot of people. Well, yeah, I mean, it's you know the 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 Affordable Care Act certainly threw you know healthcare industry into a lot of paroxysms. Um, if you go to uh, actually, I posted a couple of days ago on my WordPress blog. Uh, I think it's WordPress.com/slash Lewis McMurrin. Just some some things to know uh, right now. So I'd say probably. So first off, if you're an individual. Uh, and you and you are you know and you're not otherwise covered by your spouse or an employer or exempt or on your parents' plan, then you've got to go in back into the market and either renew the plan you got last year or um, get a new plan. Uh, November fifteenth is the beginning of open enrollment, and you've got to make your payment and any changes by December twenty third close of business for policies that begin on January first. Uh, your renewal should be coming in from your insurer as well as if you're on an um, exchange plan, uh, the exchange should have, should have sent you some information about that too. So, uh, so for those who have already been in the system, hopefully it won't be too much, too difficult. I mean, I know last year, I mean, I know people that they waited to the last minute and then they got, couldn't get through the system and they got burned. Um, so I would, I would definitely do not wait to the last minute, get on um, and get, you know, get, in, get into the system if you're going to do it. Uh, as an individual and all that. Now, the other thing is is that the employer mandate was delayed. So the employer mandate kicks in now for 2015 for um, employers with 100 or more FTEs, okay? Okay. 70% of those employees have to be covered this year, and then 95% by 2016. For employers between uh, FTE size of 50 to 99, they've got until 2016, to get those folks covered, so um, there is now, and th- and that you can shop anytime on the, you know, through either uh, through a broker, you know, on the on the on the business, you know, on the shop the the shop site, or uh, you know, there are also private exchanges um, being built as well too. So there are options out there, and generally employers have, you know, generally some more options, but it's it's certainly not cheap. Um, I mean, the, the, the one thing is now, I mean, deductibles have gone up, out-of-pocket maximums have gone up. Um, uh, you know, again, though, but, I mean, this is what you get if you're going to cover pre-existing conditions, right? I mean, so society said, hey, you know, it's not fair that, you know, I mean, I don't know how widespread that is, but, I mean, I think the general agreement was, okay, pre-existing, not being covered for pre-existing conditions, you know, is not a good thing. Well, okay, if you're going to cover that, then that's going to raise the cost of covering folks and treating people across that system. So, um, so again, too, no lifetime limits, no caps, right? You know, it used to be a million or sometimes $2 million cap on your insurance policy. Those are gone. So that can also has to be spread out, you know, has to be spread among the risk among all ratepayers. So, so your costs are going to go up there. Um, you know, you can you if you if you are eligible for subsidies, and of course that's income based and family based and all that kind of thing. You do want to go through the exchange. If you are eligible for tax subsidies and you don't go through the exchange, you will not get those tax subsidies. So so be aware of that. Um, the um, uh, there are probably a million other things I could talk about here um, on the oh on the association side. So for a number of years, Washington was a unique state in that uh, trade associations or quote unquote member governed groups had a carve out from our state within our state law where they could they could um, come together for the purposes of selling insurance and provide that to their members. Well. Um, the ACA, of course, later layered on top, of course, state insurance regulation. Then we had, a, uh, you know, of course, our, our insurance commissioner was somewhat hostile to association plans, some of it out of ignorance, some of it out of those that were, you know, maybe crossing a line and maybe not exactly hewing to the member-governed group or some of the other issues. But the ACA layered on top of it a much more difficult path for association health plans in our state. Um, essentially, you have to comply with the Department of Labor and the ERISA guidelines for member-governed groups, and that's a little bit harder test. And I, oh, yeah. again, when I was at WTIA, we spent 18 months wrangling with the OIC over these issues. Um, and so, 
so a lot of associations did not go through the effort that, say, WTIA did and the Master Builders and AGC and some of the others that tuned up their governance, tuned up their bylaws, made sure that they were truly uh, being governed by um, uh, insur- those that were insured, that the, the, the employer test that D- the DOL has, you were, you were passing among the relationships. So, um, so what used to be a very, very broad um, offering by trade associations in the state of Washington to its small business members has now been um, limited quite a bit. There are a lot fewer of those plans that are going to be approved by OIC because a lot of those, those groups did not go through the efforts that, that, again, WTA and some of the other associations did to ensure that they, would, that they fell under that, that essentially ACA exemption and that the, uh, um, the insurance commissioner kind of gave them a, you know, a blessing, if you will, in writing. So, um, so, but they do exist. And, again, too, this is why, again, it's often good to have a good broker who will do that shopping for you. Uh, again, I can do that. The firm I work with is just great. But, again, find a good broker who understands what's going on in the marketplace, what the regulatory situation is, and who can shop for you. Um, and, you know, know what you want, too. I mean, you've got to be out there. I mean, it's still a hard thing to shop for, right? It's, not, it's certainly not like shopping for a car or uh, appliances or, you know, or any number of things. Shopping for health insurance is still a pretty difficult process that really requires understanding your own budget, your family situation, your medical history, and all that kind of thing. But there is a lot of innovation going on in those unregulated areas of wellness. Uh, and a lot of companies are really getting into that, and that's an area where you can really move the ball. Um, again, to a lot of healthcare costs are really because of our own, you know, our own lifestyle choices. I mean, the obesity uh-huh. problem in the United States is not related to having coverage or not having coverage, right? It has to do with how much exercise we're getting and, you know, how much fruits and vegetables we're eating and paying attention to our to our overall health and not running to the doctor and maybe doing some better self care. So, um, uh, so anyway, but there's a what's interesting too, and I think in the Seattle area again, we've got really strong healthcare institutions. You've got some pretty major players in terms of like Providence, Swedish, you know, you got Regents, you got Primera. You know, they are getting very innovative and they are forming, interestingly, kind of um, almost venture funds to be looking at, you know, what are some interesting areas that, that we can adopt that will move the ball and either improve care, um, save time for doctors, um, you know, again, things like that, that I'm working on, you know, chronic disease management, more effective. So there's a lot of interesting innovation going on. Uh, and just look at some of the companies that are getting funded, you know, Limeade getting $25 million and every move. And some of these other local startups are doing real well uh, in this space. So it's a, um, you know, it's an ever-changing area. Again, it's a huge portion of our economy. Um, but frankly, you know, if we do a better job of managing our own health, we can re- reduce our overall health care costs, especially because the, um, the regulatory factor, especially for small employers or even medium-sized employers, is pretty heavy-duty in trying to comply and covering your employees. There's a lot of things you can have to think about, the IRS, you know, the IRS complications also. I mean, and frankly, it's probably not a good idea to say, okay, well, I'm just going to take the fines and the fees instead of covering my employees at the certain levels that they need to be covered at. At least if you pay premiums for your employees that's you know it's a tax deductible expense the fines and the fees to the irs are not tax deductible so you know that's one thing to think about well it's interesting you bring that up because i actually sat in a series of meetings um, by some elected officials who were going around and talking to community and business leaders about this and there are some uh, very uh, conscientious otherwise conscientious uh, employers that specifically said exactly what you're saying now they said we are going to take the fine instead of the expense of providing coverage because we can't do it. And yeah. uh, th- that was a very interesting admission to make. It was not a, um, a pleasant thing to hear, but it's a reality. And I even had an yeah. experience this morning that just makes me want to pull out my hair and almost kill somebody. But it was one of those things where I was patched into a call with someone that is actually going through a transition from being mm-hmm. covered for life, which is the way it started. They were going to be covered mm-hmm. for life from their retirement mm-hmm. plan into getting into the Medicare age. And so now there's a provision in that agreement that says now we're going to put you in some kind of a supplemental plan that will uh, work with Medicare. And so they were speaking with this organization, and I don't know who this broker uh, was or who this firm was, but they're talking to me 
and giving me mm-hmm. the information because I'm actually acting as the you know kind of the the legal uh, advisor to this this person. And, and in the background, you hear all kinds of talking and ambulances going past. It's almost like they're doing business outdoors. But the point <laughs> is. You know that it was they're they're rattling off all of this information, and you know this is the uh, you know the premium, and this is the uh, you know the write-off here, and this is what gets covered over here, and here's the max. And I said, well, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. What I want you to do is I want you to send me something by email or fax or whatever. I want you to send me the documents of the three or four different proposals that you're trying to um, convince my client to take because they're an elderly mm-hmm. person. You're mm-hmm. not going to get them to commit online by rattling off this information to them because they don't understand what you're saying. And right. you know, I, I, had, yeah. I had a lot of resistance to that. It was, oh, well, you're never going to get the paperwork because it's Medicare. I said, oh, no, we're going to get the paperwork. But it was just one of those things that, you know, you, people are very, very uh, disgruntled about what's happening in healthcare right now. They don't understand. Yeah. They're trying to get some clarity. There's a lot of bugs that need to be worked out. A lot of expenses are going through the roof for businesses, including my own, for uh, the same mm-hmm. coverage. And yeah. you know, you really just want to get to a place where you know there is some kind of a clearinghouse or somebody that you can trust that can, you know, can be an advocate for you and go in there and, and find out the information and then and then kind of patch it down. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. that you're in the business of doing that. Well, thanks. And I, I will admit, I mean, I I, I give our our insurance commissioner a, a hard time, and and Mike and I are are good friends going way back. But there's actually some very helpful information on oic.wa.gov about renewals and that kind of thing. Um, and that's the thing, too, you know, uh, Donia, one of the reasons I kind of got, got into, you know, sort of health insurance was, you know, change of this nature shakes things up, right? I mean, you know, the large brokers, they're going to do fine, but a lot of small brokers, this is going to probably say, you know, uh, enough is enough. I'm not going to do it. I mean, they're having to really work harder now, too. I mean, you've got to provide some good advice for your clients and right. and really be out there and, and you know, and and you know there is opportunities to provide other kinds of services too. I mean, there's you know brokers can do other things, but they're supposed to work for the client, and that's again why I really like the the folks I work with at Pro Benefits. I mean, they really shop. I mean, they'll go shop, you know, six, eight, ten different plans depending on your situation, and really find something for you with a different range of options. And you know, it all still comes down to about four basic things, though, right? What's the deductible? What's the out of pocket? You know, what's my you know out of pocket ma- maximum? What are my copays? And what does my network look like? And those right. are things that are s- sort of basic. I would say the one thing about the ACA that that is maybe quote unquote good for consumers is that we have to pay a lot more attention now to our insurance policies and our health insurance policies and what's in them and our doctors and you know getting more clarity. Don't be afraid to ask like, hey, you know, I'm exactly. coming in. What you know, what is this going to cost me? You know, or you know, what, you know, what's this going to run? And you know, trying to find just price. Transparency in procedures <laughs> is is difficult, if not impossible. So I know Charles um, about that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I love this whole Virginia Mason thing. They're making it. I think they're actually offering a, a guarantee of certain surgeries. Uh, something pretty innovative. Like wow, I mean, in writing, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. But again, too, I think that our our region is actually pretty blessed with some really interesting, effective, innovative healthcare institutions combined with. In entrepreneurial bent, in you know, in in this region, and you know, I mean, we can be real leaders in, you know, in moving the ball and and really, in, especially on the wellness side and and um, and some other areas too. So, but it's it, it is confusing. Definitely ask for help. I mean, you know, I I, and I talk to people. It's like, yeah, I tried doing this myself last year. It's like, okay, feel free if you want to, but you know, get get help if you need it. So. That's what I was suggesting. So I want to jump around a little bit more, and I'm going to see if Charles has anything to offer on that. But I, I kind of want to talk about cybersecurity and privacy. And then yeah. I also want to go back, because we didn't really talk about it. I want to talk about what you think about 2016. So. Oh, yeah. So who wants to take what, and which one sounds more interesting? We've probably got about 15 minutes, maybe a little bit less. Yeah, but, you uh, know, I, yeah, 2016, it's like, can we just get through 2014? Before I start making predictions about 2016, I mean, I don't know. I mean, here's 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 how. Um, right we now, we got to make it out of here alive first. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah, um, okay. I mean, I look at I look at. I mean, really, the the U.S. economy is doing pretty well right now. I mean, there's always there's always risks, and it's very sectoral and all that. But I, I especially look at Washington State, and I, I don't see very many other places where. I'd like to be positioned right now. I mean, we've got an aerospace sector, we've got a technology sector, we've got an agricultural sector, 
Uh, we've got trade. I mean, really, I mean, some of the bigger risks are economically, I think, are, um, you know, Europe and Asia are not doing well. Um, that could be a problem f- for us selling apples and airplanes. Um, so really, the, the global economy is important to Washington State. Um, so, you know, and often it, it, it you know, that will, the, the politics will be based on how is the economy doing. You know, you got this crazy stuff in the, you know, foreign policy realm. And, and clearly, I oh, think yeah. that the vote was, was, you know, I mean, let me put it this way. I mean, Bush set the bar so low after Katrina for competence in, in the federal government. And unfortunately, I think the Obama administration has lowered it. The Ebola thing. Just uh, some of the, what's happening in the Middle East, and I mean, we're trying to get out of wars, but the wars just keep coming at us. You know, and as a libertarian, kind of, it's like, man, I want to be out of this foreign policy mess. But when America, when America is disengaged, it only gets more dangerous. I mean, now we got, you know, you know, Putin and Russia trying to become, you know, a Soviet empire again. I mean, it is a dangerous world out there. Um, yeah. Voters don't vote much on on foreign policy, except when it's going bad or going exactly. badly. So. I, I, I don't know what people are thinking around that. In two years, in two years, I mean, right now the president and the administration and Congress have an opportunity to do some thing to govern, right? I mean, the Republicans need to govern. That's what the voters are saying. Okay, fine. I don't want to see Harry Reid, Harry the Crank anymore. I'll, you know, I'll take Mitch McConnell's drawl over Harry Reid's, you know, scratchy old voice. But you better do something, you know. Exactly. And I, that's what people want. They want to see. People govern well. And, you know, Reagan did it with a Democrat House. Clinton did it with Republican Congress. It can be done. It can be done if you don't, if you don't use the legislative process purely as politics for two years. I mean, they actually need to actually govern. I think that's govern. part of it, too. I, I think that's part of why people think the red tide is just because of a, the usual backlash where I'm ticked off at the Democrats. I don't like what they're doing, so let me just go ahead and elect a lot, a lot of Republicans. And I think that's part of it for some people that are just hard, you know, die-in-the-wool partisans, and there will always be that way. But I think mm-hmm. the other part of it is that people are doing it to say, here's your chance. You now have your majority. Now, instead of right. just sitting here and, and stopping everything the other side is doing, now you have an opportunity to show us mm-hmm. what you're really capable of or willing to do. And if you're yeah, not willing yeah. to govern and if you're not willing to give up this stalemate, then we're going to vote you out again. So yeah, I, I think that yeah. that's part of why people are doing that. Charles, do you have any comments you want to make yeah. about what's going on? In- well, I, I will say that I think the vote is not so much a pro-Republican, but a we're not happy with what government's been doing for us. That's right. really what I as my take on it. In other words, the parties be damned at, at a certain level. You guys have to be efficient. You have to think about better ways to govern. You have to produce better results. You take something like Obamacare, and it tried to solve one problem, but it left so much undone. The idea being, oh, we'll come back and do it. Well, you never address the cost curve in healthcare. You can't you can't solve healthcare by just trying to come up with a better insurance policy. I mean, it's a start, but the, you know, that's only going to go so far. After a point in time, you're going to have to address the cost, uh, the underlying cost of healthcare. Just like you're saying, you got to have transparency. You got to be able to make choices. Um, and unfortunately, the pros and cons. It may have simplified things by saying, "Well, we're not going to allow certain policies that don't have coverage." On the other hand, you know, like like let's say um, a very low value type insurance that that doesn't provide a lot of coverage. So now, instead of talking about the coverage, it's like you say, "Who are the providers?" What are your deductibles, and et cetera, et cetera? So they set the bar high there. But the problem, of course, is we haven't done anything to make healthcare, uh, pre- the production of healthcare, really any more efficient. And uh, the United States is actually one of the more inefficient healthcare systems. So basically, we've set the bar by saying let's have expensive healthcare insurance, but let's not make the system more efficient. So we basically layered on a cost that we can't afford. The reason so many people have dropped out and are even considering dropping out of healthcare is because they just can't afford it. I mean, a family of three is going to take you twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars to cover a family of three. Are you kidding me? I mean, for a lot of people, that's a significant portion of their income. They spend more on healthcare than they do on their housing. That is significant. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think that's what I think the anger in terms of the election is, is that. We're promising, we're setting high standards, but we're really not, we're not executing properly. We're not actually coming up with inefficiencies and innovations in government that say, let's figure out a better way of doing this, and let's not just figure out how to dole out the money, but let's try to figure out a way to do things better. 
And I think that's what people want to see. So, yes, the Republicans better deliver on that. But if they just, you know, take this as a, look, you voted for us. This is great. Let us run with it. Let's, you know, nan 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 on the Democrats. Well, in, in, in two years, it'll be nan 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 back on the Republicans. And then it'll be nan 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 back on the, on the Democrats. And it's just going to go back and forth. And, and Lou, I think you know this, too. It's, it's oscillated. It's oscillated like three or four times now. And, um, you know, it, I think that's basically saying is stop taking this as a party vote and start taking it as a, a vote that says we want real change, not, not lip, you know, not lip syncing, not we'll make a great promise. And, uh, you know, we'll promise you better. It's like deliver us better. Right. Figure I out mean, a way to do this more efficiently. And that's where that's why I think rules that lock you into a certain system and say and, and try to prevent innovation are bad rules. And that's where we got to be careful. Well, you want yeah. to offer something else? I would say, you know, I mean, I think it points out this, this behemoth that we've created in Washington, D.C., this beltway you know, monster that, you know, just sucks in all our money, and their job is just to keep as much as they can inside that beltway. And it's just, you know, I mean, people are tired of it, but you can't keep giving them power. When Republicans can vote against Republican interests and Democrats can vote against Democrat interests, and they can do it together in one big bill, whether it's a tax reform bill, whether it's an immigration bill, whether it's just budget bills, right? I mean, what is the justification for subsidizing ethanol and sugar anymore? I don't know. Yeah. I don't see it. I mean, again, even things like Export-Import Bank. I mean, I know some of these are kind of Tea Party kind of things, but I think it makes a point. It's like, can we just stop doing something that has very little value? Um, and anyway, but it's going to, you know, but the American people do speak and, you know, the wisdom of crowds is, you know, continues to do it. And some of the online commentary is, is well, I mean, on the Democrat side is like, well, yeah, well, good luck. You know, yeah, you're, you're going to blow. You just care about the rich. It's like, okay, come on, guys, you're in denial here, folks. I mean, you got your rear ends handed to you for a reason, right? You did a bad job. Right. So, but again, too, like you said, Charles, it'll be handed back to them if they don't write. So. So you want to get in a little quick cyber privacy uh, deal? Yeah, let's talk about some cybersecurity. Yeah, so let me let me throw you a couple things out here. Again, I've been learning about a lot more about cybersecurity and, and what's going on. I mean, it is a huge problem. I mean, you oh, talked yeah. to Mark Anderson, of course. I mean, he's really big on this right now. I mean, it's intellectual property theft. Supposedly, $250 billion per year, you know, is lost to intellectual property theft. $110 uh -huh. billion per year to cyber crime. Another hundred, another two hundred and something billion per year, just in downtime and reputation damage, and average legal settlements for companies are a million dollars, and the average cost of a data breach is almost six million dollars. I mean, and this is for you know all size enterprises. I mean, you know, I, I have a I have a strong suspicion. I don't know for sure that the vendor through which Target got hacked by a Russian teenager probably is out of business now. So, I mean, this is a huge, huge problem for intellectual property, uh, for national security, for, um, you know, financial information, and just, for, and just for messing with websites. So it is an enormous problem on the cyber side. The privacy side, of course, is a lot more nuanced because is it privacy from Facebook? Is it privacy from NSA? Um, you know, Protecting your privacy, you know, is a whole different ball game for, you know, consumers. And, of course, we want people that are holding our information to keep it held and private as well, too. So um, it, it's a huge problem, and it just, you know, and part of it, too, is goes back to, you know, responding to phishing and think, like a lot of basic consumer stuff. I mean, still, there's the ways people are getting into companies is sort of old-fashioned phishing scams and email attachment scams. So... Part of it is still consumer and employee education, but let's face it, I mean, there are national bad actors out there that are going after intellectual property, national security secrets, and other things that, you know, um, are very, very valuable to, to, you know, companies and consumers and, you know, the, the society in general. So it's a big problem yeah, and, and really needs to be dealt with in a much more effective way. And, and when you start talking about like cybersecurity and privacy, yeah, you are talking about national security issues. We were I was at the White House in July where we had a meeting about that very thing and you know, at what point um, does it become something where the government, especially when you're talking about big data, open data, uh, and government mm -hmm. getting in the business of yeah, IT, right. um, they've always right. been in the business, but you know what I mean. Uh, but but yeah, it's, it's yeah, one yeah. of those, 
And even the case that just happened with Microsoft where they decided because they were going after somebody that they wanted to go after one of the clients um, and, and have access to their, their corporate information, their emails. And so, you know, Microsoft is fighting this all the way up to the Supreme Court. So, mm-hmm. you know, people are talking about cybersecurity. They're talking about ISIS on, on the one hand and all of these other wars that we're having. But the real mm-hmm. wars that are coming and that are actually growing in magnitude are the cybersecurity and private Absolutely. ones. Absolutely. Actually, infrastructure, financial markets. I mean, there's a lot of stuff coming down the pipe that we really have to yeah. uh, start looking at in that, in that realm. Charles, did you have some comments? I know you do this for a living. Okay. So. Okay, we should take every dime that we spend on ethanol subsidies, spend zero, zero out that budget, and take every dime of it and spend it on cybersecurity. This is the kind of thing the government actually should be involved in and mm-hmm. where they should leverage their resources. And you know what? You know, where, you know, they need to be responding to the way the market and the industry is changing. Everything is going online. And you're right, at a basic level for the small business clients, yeah, not not clicking on that email attachment. Well, you know, every once in a while somebody's going to do it anyways. They're going to get infected. Those aren't the things that I'm always worrying about. Sure, I don't like it. You know, we have to get an hour off. I'm really concerned about the organized nation-state actors leveraging these tools to attack our infrastructure. Um, I'm talking about major data breaches where they can compromise and steal billions of dollars uh, and not, not, not 50,000 credit card accounts, but millions of credit card accounts. You know, that level, this is where the government should get involved in setting standards and helping uh, provide resources to secure our cyber infrastructure, because if they don't, we could get our hat handed to us. Um, We are the most, one of the most, if not the most, cyber dependent country in the world. And so there's an asymmetrical aspect to this attack. There isn't a lot of cyber infrastructure in North Korea or some of these Eastern Bloc countries to attack. On the other hand, we've got a lot of attack surface, and we have a lot of value, and we have a lot of intellectual property value. So when somebody's stealing using electronic tools, the, 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 the payoff for them for a small investment is much greater than it is if we don't invest in our own security. So that's what I have to say about it. We have to invest in it, and we have to pay attention to it. And really, this is where policy needs to start thinking about investing resources instead of, like you say, Lou, why we have so many uh, – old legacy things out there because the politics behind it, because the money behind it says you got to spend money certain ways, you know, to keep certain things going. And you know what? I think that's also part of the vote that went out there. People are tired of business as usual. They want to see things that don't matter anymore go away. And they want to see the money spent on priorities that do matter. Yeah. Yeah. No, good point. They want to see some innovation and yeah, they want to see innovation. They don't want to see any more, you know, antitrust type, you know, every, one person has control. I mean, you look at different things. I mean, it spends down in the other industry sectors, but you look at something as simple as Uber and the fight that, you know, Uber, the, what they're <laughs> looking at and the, the fight that they're having because of the medallions yeah. and the competitive right. advantage that they provide. And, and you know, it, it's just that disruption. And so, yeah. you know, that our society, because of technology, but just because of basic evolution, we're kind of tired of status quo and we're looking for new ways to do things. So I think that's part of yeah. it. This disintermediation happens. Yeah. So any other final does. comments from either one of you guys? You want to give us some URLs or some Facebook pages or something we can go back yeah, yeah, to? Yeah, I, 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 I want to call it a couple cool little startups in sort of, I guess what we call it, in the government space. Uh, one of them is called QuickWick, Q-U-I-C-K-W-I-C.com. And this is an app that helps um, – uh, the folks, primarily, you know, single moms who are on the WIC program, it's a mobile app and helps them manage those budgets and those uh, shopping carts a lot more effectively uh, than now where, you know, the, the, the big problem comes at the checkout counter. You know, if a gal, somebody grabbed, you know, the wrong loaf of bread or the wrong kind of eggs, the wrong milk, then it becomes a big nightmare at that checkout stand, right? And QuickWick is one, um, is a mobile app that will help you know, manage that better, and it's uh, really, um, really cool. The other one I wanted to mention is Simplify, S-I-M-P-O-L-F-Y, and this is another startup in Seattle that is um, making an attempt to match up actual bills in Congress with and voting records with where you stand on issues, so you can really get a much more complete view of um, of really what the voting record is of you know folks in Congress, what the bills actually say, and where you stand on them, so you can really get a much better idea, 
you know, separate from listening to speeches and getting, you know, campaign mailers um, about that. Uh, so that's an interesting simplify, S-I-M-P-O-L-F-Y.com. And then, again, for those that are for singles out there, um, uh, Siren.Moby. It's an interesting new dating app. I uh, had a nice conversation with the CEO yesterday. And for those that are uh, looking for love online, Siren.Moby might be the way to go. <laughs> And it's a um, it's only in Seattle right now, but they're going to be opening up in some other cities uh, uh, soon. So anyway, thank you for that uh, for that um, uh, offer of free advertising for these folks that will now love me very much. Yeah, I was going to say, who knew you were a pimp, Lou? <laughs> well, I was a lobbyist, so what can I say? Oh, that's right. Wait a minute. What am I saying here? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wanted to thank you guys for tuning in this afternoon and uh, make everybody aware that you can find this broadcast as a podcast at the site that you are using right now or on Facebook at backslash uh, STR8 Talk Radio. Um, That's Sam, Tommy, Roger, 8 Talk Radio. Be sure to like us there and follow us here. And another big shout-out to Tim Ryan Construction. I mean, they have really been helping yay. us this afternoon. Yay, yay. A great company with great people that let us broadcast on-site after that power outage. So thank you, Lou. Yay. Right, My pleasure. Thanks host. very much. Thank you, guys. And this really, is your host, really Sonja Keating, it. signing off at 3 p.m. Pacific time, Thursday, November 6th. And we will see you next time. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.